choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 269 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 13, Houston, We've Had a Problem, Part 4. It was one hour and two minutes after the explosion in the service module of Apollo 13. Oxygen Tank 2 was gone, and Oxygen Tank 1 was still venting. Mission Control ordered the reactant valve to fuel cell number 3 closed, hoping that it might stop the oxygen venting. It did not. Ecom, have you deduced anything? Uh, Have you seen your uh, reactant valves go off? Have you seen flow cease? You can't tell flight. They were open-circuited, and the pressure uh, still appears to be going down. Yeah. Ecom Cy Libergott looked away from his screen. The end, he knew, was at last here. Had the explosion or meteor collision or whatever else crippled the ship occurred just seven hours earlier or one hour later, it would have been another Ecom on the console at that time. Another ECOM who would have attended this death watch. But the accident happened at 55 hours, 54 minutes, and 53 seconds into the mission. During the last hour of a shift that by sheer scheduling belonged to Seymour Libergott. Now Libergott, through no fault of his own, was about to become the first flight controller in the history of the manned space program to lose the ship that had been placed in his charge. A calamity any controller worked his whole career to avoid. The ECOM turned to his right toward where Bob Hesselmeyer, the Lunar Module's environmental officer, sat. As Libergott glanced at Hesselmeyer's screen, He could not help thinking of that simulation, that terrible simulation, which had nearly cost him his job a few weeks earlier. Libergott told Hesselmeyer that they better start preparing for the lunar module lifeboat procedure now. But that would be implemented on the next shift. At one hour and nine minutes since the explosion, it was now nearing time for a shift change in mission control. Okay. All flight controllers, I'd suggest you start handing over because I think a fresh team is probably going to be thinking clearer. I think the rest of us can continue working in some other function in support of the new team coming on. 
Prior to his shift beginning, Flight Director Glenn Lunny had been down in the trench, reviewing options to return the astronauts to Earth. At the time of explosion, Apollo 13 was about 200,000 miles from Earth and 45,000 miles from the surface of the moon. They were just entering the phase of the mission where lunar gravity becomes stronger than Earth's gravity. This is often called the lunar sphere of influence. When Lunny came back up to the console, Krantz stepped down from his position. In a hushed tone, Lunny told Krantz that he had the trench looking at maneuvers with ignition about three hours from current mission time. There were two basic options, a direct abort or one going around the moon. The fastest option was a direct abort, which would get the crew home in 34 hours. The procedure would be to turn around now and fly in front of the moon. But the problem with this was the lunar module would have to be jettisoned and the astronauts would have to use the main service module engine. There were several versions of the second option, which was to fly around the moon. The best version would take two days longer, but they didn't have to use the main service module engine at all, and they could keep the lunar module. The problem with this was the lunar module was good for two crewmen for two days. Taking the path around the moon would leave them 36 hours short on battery power. Flight Director Windier, the leader of the Maroon team, now joined Lunny and Kraft at the Flight Director's console. Windier believed the shortest and fastest path to Earth was the best. He seemed to favor the direct abort. Lunny and Krantz disagreed. Krantz told the group, that he didn't want to jettison the lunar module since they had not discovered the exact causes of the explosion or the extent of the damage. The main engine or its control systems may have been damaged and they needed more time to work out the procedures for the return. Lunny then chimed in saying, Keeping the lunar module buys us time. We don't have a second chance and if we jettison the lunar module, we cut off a lot of options. Whatever we do, we'd better do it right. Krantz wrapped up the discussion saying, quote, We should hold on to the lunar module and go around the moon and take our chances with the lunar module. I believe we could come up with a plan that gets us home. End quote. Debate among the flight directors was not uncommon. They all arrived at the flight director's position along different paths. Given a few minutes, the rapid pooling of experience is often the quickest way to firm up their flight plan. The discussion was brief, intense, and conclusive. Krantz wanted to get every option and opinion out on the table before they selected the return path and the trench was nervous about pulling off a direct abort 
so close to the moon. Krantz knew Lunny would fight to the death for the long return around the moon after talking to the troops in the trench. Controllers now clustered around the flight director's console as they talked, recognizing a decision was imminent. Bostick and Dietrich were joined by Krantz's Fido, Bill Stovall, from the trench. Lausma crowded in, representing the crew. With all the players now at the console, Krantz looked directly at Chris Kraft and said, Chris, I don't trust the Command Service Module Surface Propulsion System. It's in the back end where we had the explosion, and we won't know if it's good until we try it. Then it may be too late. We need to buy some time to think and to build the come-home procedures. I believe we can find the power. Our only real option is to go around the moon. Kraft had been listening. He looked at Lunny and then nodded. Lunny said, I agree. The direct abort closes out our options. We should keep the lunar module. The trench had been standing by, looking grim, hoping they would not be told to pull off a direct abort at this time. Then, when they saw the decision coming down in their favor, they smiled for the first time in a long while, nodding in agreement and relief. Through some miracle, a burst of intuition, something they had all seen, heard, or felt, now told them, don't use the main engine. There was little time for this debate, so Krantz was glad that there had been immediate agreement. It is believed at the time some of the systems controllers favored the fastest way home, a direct abort. But the decision was made, and the controllers would just have to live with it. Missions run on trust. Trust allows the crew and the team to make the minutes and seconds count in a crisis. In the scramble to secure the command module, mission control did not have a chance to brief the crew or even get their opinion on the return path. Krantz believed the crew would fight to hang on to the lunar module. Krantz felt Lausma, as their representative, would speak out if needed. With the decision made, Chris Krafts went up to brief the NASA brass on their plan to get Apollo 13 home. The trench returned to their consoles to start developing the return trajectory plan and brief their backroom personnel. With the retreat to the lunar module beginning, the trajectory path chosen, and the handover to Lunny was accomplished, Krantz signed off in the log at 57.05 mission elapsed time, one hour and ten minutes after the explosion. It had been the longest hour of Krantz's life. Let me go back over this again. We're heading over to Glenn. I'd suggest a white team goes back and starts going through the D-log of the data. In other words, let's see if we can go back to the initial conditions and work on that problem to see if we can find out what happened and we may find some better clues as to what to do and let the fresh guys come on and try to figure out where do we go from here. 
With the O2 pressure in Tank 1 continuing to drop, Glenn Lunny, flight director for the black team, was immediately quizzing his ECOM, Clint Burton. The pressure is not improving any. Okay, now the next question is, are you willing to do, do that on uh, fuel cell number one? That's a question we're pondering, Flight. We've, we've got to come up with an answer on that one. Soon. Fuel cell two is working okay. That's affirmative. Unless we do something to get that uh, oxygen, it's not going to do us any good to save fuel cells. That's affirmative. Okay, huh? Okay. With fuel cell three already shut down, the oxygen still venting, and fuel cell one producing no power, Lunny pressed his ECOM to shut down fuel cell one. ECOM, I don't like the way that O2 pressure is going down. If you want to do something about these other reactant valves, let's make up our mind. Okay. Don't you think? Let, let me get back with you, man. Fight. We'll stand by on these readouts. Yeah, okay. Anybody can copy the readouts. Be sure you're discussing this reactants. Okay. Flight ECOM. Good. Okay, on the reactants for fuel cell one. Uh, seems to me we have no choice but to go ahead and do it. The pressure continues to drop. Uh, we're not going to have anything left soon anyway. So uh, it looks like the next best thing to try is to go ahead and uh, turn the reactants off on uh, fuel cell one. And of course, he'll want to make sure that his circuit breaker is closed for uh, fuel cell one when he starts to uh, close the reactants out. Which circuit breaker is that, the one on 226? Raj. At about the same time this conversation was taking place, Jack Swigert on the center couch in Odyssey looked at his instrument panel and discovered that while the oxygen readings might have been grim on the ground, they were downright dire in the spacecraft. Squinting through the growing darkness of his powered-down ship, where the temperature had fallen to a chilly 58 degrees, Swigert saw that his Tank 1 pressure was down to a bare 205 pounds per square inch. As the oxygen continued to vent, Swigert radioed Houston. Okay, Jack, it looks like O2 Tank 1 pressure is just a hair over 200. We confirm that here, and the temperature also confirms it. Okay, does it look like it's still going down? It's uh, slowly going to zero, and uh, we're uh, starting to think about uh, Lamb Lifeboat. Yeah, that's what we're thinking about, too. We're going to have to have you uh, go through the shutdown procedure in fuel cell one. Our O2 uh, pressure is going down, as you note, and the uh, temperature confirms it. Okay, Jack, we're proceeding with the shutdown procedure for fuel cell one. And 13 Houston, we'd like you to isolate the repress package, please. Okay. Isolate the repress package, Roger. I can confirm repress package is off. Roger, uh, so now you've got the uh, repress package and the surge tank isolated. Is that affirmed? That is Charlie. Okay, 13, we verify that we want you to close down, shut down fuel cell one, close the reacts valve. Roger, okay. uh, fuel cell one, close the reactor valve. Fuel cell, the reactor valve on fuel cell one is closed. Okay, Jack, I can confirm step two, the fuel cell shutdown procedure is complete for fuel cell one. This is an important moment in the flight. 
The command module Odyssey is nearly dead, but the command module is needed as it is the only means to get through Earth's atmosphere and return the astronauts alive. They have already secured the oxygen they'll need for re-entry by isolating two small tanks in the command module, the repress package and the surge tank. They will also need to secure battery power for that re-entry. With an okay to abandon ship at last granted by the ground, the crew wasted no time in getting started. Assuming the three men were entertaining any hopes of getting home, they could not just take up residence in the lunar module and let their fading mothership sputter to a halt. Rather, Odyssey would have to be shut off one switch or system at a time so as to preserve the operation of all its instruments and maintain the calibration of their settings. Under ideal conditions, all three men would handle the job. Under current conditions, however, Swigert would have to take care of things on his own, because at the same time Odyssey was being taken offline, Aquarius would have to be brought online, a two-man task that would have to be completed before the command module expired. Lovell and Hayes swam through the lower equipment bay of Odyssey and into the lunar module, where they had broadcast their happy TV show barely two hours earlier. Hayes settled into his spot on the right side of the craft and surveyed the blacked-out instrument panel. Lovell floated to his station on the left. I didn't expect to be back here so soon, Hayes said. Just be thankful it's here to come back to, Lowell said. With the possibility of having a healthy ship again under his command, Lovell felt a brief surge of optimism. But Houston was about to extinguish it. As if things couldn't get any worse, Ecom Burton asked George Bliss, who was still working in the back room, how long Oxygen Tank 1 would last. At first, Bliss told him a little over an hour. But the bad news was the leaking was getting worse. Bliss consulted his readouts and did his calculation again. Bliss could see the leak rate accelerating from 1.7 pounds per minute toward 3 pounds per minute. Ecom, Bliss said, we've got a little under 40 minutes left in tank one. After a brief pause, he came back on the line. Leak rates increase all the time, Ecom. Now it looks like we've got about 18 minutes left. Flight Ecom, go ahead. We'd like to go ahead and power down the CSM uh, all we can except leave that battery charger on. Uh, of course, leave them a little light because we're going to be there in 15 minutes anyway. Capcom, we're going to be out of power in CSM in 15 minutes on the fuel cells. We want them to... A few moments later, Bliss's voice came into Burton's ear to tell him that the 18 predicted minutes was now down to just seven. A minute later, the seven was down to just four. At one hour, 46 minutes after the explosion, the crew was ordered to get into the limb. 13 Houston, uh, we'd like you to start uh, making your way over to the limb now. Uh, Fred and uh, Jim are in the limb. Okay, Jack, thank you. Swigert heard Lousma's command, but was not inclined to act on it immediately. He knew he could live for at least a little while 
on the ambient air left in the command module cockpit, and he was not about to leave without completing his power down. He responded to Lausma non-responsively. Fred and Jim are in the limb already, he said. As Swigert raced through his power down, Lovell and Hayes worked to bring the limb to life. The first order of business was its guidance platform. Aquarius was equipped with a three-gimbal guidance system that was essentially identical to Odyssey's. Before the platform could be used, the power-up protocol called for the command module pilot, Swigert, to note the orientation and coordinates of the guidance platform in the command module and shout them through the tunnel to the commander in the lunar module. The commander would then perform some quick conversion computations on each coordinate to reflect the slightly different orientations of the lunar module and the command module, and then type the converted numbers into the lunar module's computer. If the calculations weren't made and the numbers weren't typed in before Odyssey lost all its power, the information in its computer would be lost forever. Racing against the dying tank, Lovell tore a blank sheet of paper out of a flight plan and fished a pen out of the upper arm pocket of his flight suit. Interrupting Swigert and Lausma as they volleyed power down data to each other, Lovell requested the first few guidance coordinates and Swigert hurriedly complied. But as the commander copied the numbers onto his scratch paper and prepared to perform the necessary calculations, he was seized by a momentary and unaccustomed uncertainty. Could he perform the calculations properly? Would his ciphering be correct? With the clock ticking down and so much writing on these rudimentary calculations, Lovell all at once found himself doubting his ability to add and subtract. So Lovell asked Houston to check his math. Okay, I want you to double check my arithmetic to make sure we got a good course aligned. Roll cal angle was minus two degrees. Command module angles were three five 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 seven one six seven seven eight three five one eight seven. Okay, Jim, we copy the roll cal at, two, at minus 2.0. Command module is 355.57, Okay, Jack, thank you. And uh, Aquarius, your arithmetic looks good on the course of line there. Upon Houston's approval, Lovell signaled Hayes to enter the numbers into the computer, got the remaining coordinates from Swigert, and for the next few minutes, the crew worked frantically flipping toggle switches and circuit breakers and turning every other knob and dial necessary to reconfigure the twin spacecraft. The process was a chaotic one. With the ground shouting instructions up to the astronauts, the crew shouting questions down and both sets of transmissions often colliding on the air, conveying no useful information in either direction. Glenn Lunny, briefly lost in all the clashing babble, inadvertently ordered that the attitude control jets be powered down in Odyssey before the corresponding jets could be powered up in Aquarius. And, for one fleeting moment, Aquarius was in danger of tumbling into gimbal lock. Finally, however, the twin craft were ready. 
and Level informed Houston. Go ahead, Aquarius. Okay, Odyssey is completely powered down now, according to the procedure that you read to Jackson. Roger, we copy. Uh, that's where we want to be, Jim. In the dark, quiet Odyssey, Swigert took a lingering look around. Then he drifted through the tunnel from the rapidly chilling Odyssey to the slowly warming Aquarius and floated down between Level and Hayes. It's up to you now, he said. Sitting at the flight director's console, Glenn Lunny allowed himself a moment of relief, but only a brief one. His crew had just transferred themselves from a ship in which they were certain not to survive the next few minutes to one in which they were likely not to survive the next few days. The improvement was real. He knew, but ultimately academic. What concerned Lunny most at the moment was not the limb's life support capability. The oxygen, water, and power aboard the ship either would or wouldn't be sufficient to sustain the three men for the time needed for a trip back to Earth. But it would take a while for that problem to play itself out. What concerned Lunny now was the trajectory the ship was following. It was two hours, 45 minutes, since the explosion. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 269 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 13, Houston, We've Had a Problem, Part 4. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here want to announce again that the last 50 episodes are now available on Spotify. So if you're a user of Spotify, check that out. Are you looking for old episodes of the podcast? Episodes 1 through 83 are available on iTunes, Google Play, and all your favorite podcatchers. Just look for the Space Rocket History Archive. I will get some more episodes up this month and add them to the archive pretty soon, I hope. I'm limited to 100 megabytes that I can put up on that archive podcast per month. So I'll try to get that done pretty quickly. But if you just can't wait, all of the episodes are always available on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Today, we salute the commercial-level donors. There are five so far this year. Commercial donors contribute $90 or more during the calendar year. Thank you for your continued support, commercial-level donors. Okay, had several afterthoughts about this week's episode. First, my sources, Lost Moon by Jim Lovell, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, Flight by Chris Kraft, the Apollo 13 Flight Journal, the Johnson Space Center, Glenn Lunny's Apollo 13 Mission Report, Mr. Dick Rasa, the Internet Archive, 
and Wikipedia. Well, at two hours, 45 minutes after the explosion, we can finally take a breath. The lunar module is powered up and the command module is powered down. An excellent effort by everyone involved. What did you think about the decision to take the long way home instead of a direct turn around and straight back to Earth without going around the moon? According to my source, Mr. Dick Raisa, the vehicle was on trajectory to the moon and the only crew return to Earth option was by circumnavigating the moon and performing a trans-Earth injection burn using the lunar module rocket engine which had never before been attempted. He felt that was the only reasonable way to return the crew to Earth and I might add that firing that big service module engine would have been a huge risk. I have no doubt that the correct decision was to go around the moon. And it was pretty nice how they could all make that decision while standing at the flight director's console and not go through a huge meeting. <laughs> okay, I posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on my homepage, spacerockethistory.com. I hope you check that out. We were very pleased to receive 10 donations to support the podcast over the past week. Mark U. from South Dakota sent in another donation this year and moved up to the Salyut Skylab level with Rocket Emoji. Scott H. from Washington sent in another, another donation this year and moved to the Salyut Skylab level. Graham W. from Dublin, Ireland donated at the Mercury level. Martin K. donated at the Mercury level and earned his moon emoji. Nicholas A. donated at the Vostok level. Richard H. donated at the Vostok level. Nick M. donated at the Sputnik level. Richard C. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Nick Fan pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. And Patrick N. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level and earned his rocket emoji. Well, during the dog days of summer, we managed to lose three Patreons over the past month transition from August to September. Our Patreon donors are now at 183, with a goal of reaching 218 by the end of the year. Our total donors for 2018 have reached 330, with a goal of reaching 418 in 2018. August did turn out to be the second lowest funded month of 2018 by $2.14. May was the third lowest and April was the lowest funded month so far this year. Now, ironically, August had the highest number of downloads all year. So that's kind of makes you think, doesn't it? For those of you who enjoy the content provided here and have not donated yet in 2018, please consider supporting the podcast if and only if you are financially able. Keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded. To support the podcast, go to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange Donate button to make a one-time donation or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page at the level they choose to donate. For those of you who have already donated for 2018, I certainly appreciate it. 
This week, we're giving out the new official SRH logo magnet. It is 3 inches in diameter, round, and will stick to most refrigerators. To select the winner, Mrs. SRH gave every 2018 donor a number. She put it in the Google, Google Random Number Generator and got the number for Bruce Wilkinson. Bruce Wilkinson, if you would email me and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. Okay, folks, that's all I have for this week. I'll try to get episode 270 out by next Thursday. So long for now.